Well, good morning. Here we are for number two of Apprentices of Jesus. Isn't that just the most wonderful piece of scripture? All of scripture, of course, is wonderful, but uh, that particular piece of scripture, I could listen to read again and again. And I hope by the end of my few thoughts this morning, uh, you will enjoy it too. But before we turn to what I've got written down here, uh, let's again take that moment and invite God to come and do his own work, to open our minds and our hearts. Now, this is not just a wee quirky thing that I do when I speak, but I'm utterly convinced that uh, it is so important that we take this moment and ask God to come and open our hearts, to intentionally invite him to give us the, the antennae, as it were, to hear what it is that he wants to say to us each, including me. What is he going to say to me as I share these few thoughts? And what is it he wants to say to you? What I say is not important. It's what he wants to say to you. So let's take that moment to be still, to turn our minds and our hearts to him and to ask him, come Lord and meet with us. Father, hear our prayer for Jesus' sake. Amen. We worship a wonderful Saviour, and we've just sung a fabulous song that reminds us of that, uh, of a, a God whose love allowed his Son to go and face that which none of us could ever even begin to understand for our sake. A Saviour who in the garden said, not my will but yours be done. I don't know whether I'm standing too close to this or why it's sort of screaming a wee bit, but uh, I hope you can sort of block it out. <clears throat> a God who allowed his only son to come, a saviour who in the garden said, not my will, but yours be done. Uh, saying there, I'm prepared to take on whatever it is that it takes, Father, to let these wretches that we've just sung about become your treasure. Isn't that a most awesome concept? Last week we looked at this idea of how when we encounter that living Christ, he transforms us, the disciples, that for the benefit of those perhaps who weren't here, very quickly, let's remind ourselves, we looked at the disciples on the Emmaus Road and we discovered that when they encountered the living Christ, when they embraced him as alive and not just as some dead prophet, uh, when they embraced the fact that here he was, when they met with him in the intimacy of the breaking of bread and discovered that he lived, their lives were transformed, they were different. And we must choose to step into that same living encounter with the living Christ because when we do, we discover 
the reality of the cross, what I've, just, what I've just talked about in those few moments, and indeed of the resurrection, sorry, indeed of Pentecost, that he now indwells me. He's not just living in the world, it's not just that he lives and walks among us, but that he lives in me. And I, I think it, uh, it takes us, uh, we need to take time to go and reflect on that, that it's not just the living God in the world, it is that he dwells in me. And that's an awesome concept, that the God who made the universe, the living God, now chooses to dwell within me, because he longs to transform me. So as we embrace this, as we enter into this living relationship with the living Christ who lives within us, then we enter into a lifelong process of becoming. And we discovered this last week, that it's as we sit at his feet as Mary did, as we allow him to transform us, as we become like him, then we discover how to be his disciples then we discover what it is to be his apprentice. And when we do that, <clears throat> excuse me, we also are much more tuned into what his agenda is in the world. The kingdom that is coming, the kingdom that has come, we become vehicles, agents of that kingdom in the world because we're tuned into where he's working and what it is that he's doing. And we step into that as co-workers. And we do it in the way of the easy yoke, the light burden, uh, rather than as those who are just doing, entering into religious activity. The journey of transformation, because that's what it is, is what it is to be an apprentice of Jesus. So that kind of brings us up to date from last week. Uh, I also quoted for you Dallas Willard, and I want to quote that again because there are elements of that quote I want to draw out in today and link with our passage. Let me read the quote again. Dallas Willard, if you're not familiar with him, he's a Baptist pastor. He's also a professor of uh, philosophy in California, and he has written extensively on this whole journey of the inner life. In fact, he's very definitely one of my major mentors in it. And he said this, uh, or I read this rather in a quote, uh, in a, an article by him. As Jesus' disciple, I am his apprentice in kingdom living. Now let us be clear, being apprenticed is not a matter of religious activity, but an orientation and quality of my entire existence. It takes a wee bit of grasping that, doesn't it? It's not about religious activity. It's not about running and doing things. It's about an orientation and quality of my entire existence, out of which I do, out of which I serve. Apprentices of Jesus, Dallas Willard goes on, are those who seriously intending to become like Jesus from the inside out, systematically, and progressively rearrange their affairs to that end. Now, I want us to pick up that last sentence. Systematically and progressively rearrange their affairs to that end. And that is where the challenge comes, and indeed the joy. Systematically, that we have a rhythm, a structure, a pattern in our lives that is entering into this process of becoming. So there is a part for us there is a role for us, there is action that we need to take, but the transformation of our lives then is his work as we'll discover. 
And the second point out of Dallas Willard's quote is that it's a progressive systematic rearranging. It's a journey. We don't overnight become these model saints. We don't overnight become these people who are no longer irritable or lose our temper or all the things that we know we don't like about ourselves. It's a journey, but it's a journey that has a real purpose and the joy is in that journey. There's tremendous joy in that journey as we discover ourselves to being changed, to being transformed. I don't know about you, but for years as a Christian, I used to think, you know, they talk about this kind of person I'm to be, and I haven't seen an awful lot of evidence of it. I haven't progressed much in this. What's wrong? Why is that? And I think it's because I hadn't understood this process. So systematically and progressively, uh, entering into this journey of spiritual transformation. Let's turn then to today's text, which was John 15, that wonderful passage. And if you want to just have it in front of you, I'm going to walk you through a few of the uh, statements. Well, probably most of them, because I, we haven't given you a large section of it. So first of all, let me pick up the words, <clears throat> excuse me, where Jesus says very clearly, remain in me and I will remain in you. Now, there's an amazing promise in there, isn't there? That if I do my part, if I enter into this systematic and progressive rearranging of my affairs so that I am entering into this place of spiritual transformation, if I remain in Christ, then he promises that he'll remain in me. He will come and do a work within me. And then moving on, no branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Now, why does that statement come next? It seems to me it's because the fruit that Jesus is talking about, which later we see in Galatians and other places in the New Testament, is the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and so on. Now, fruit that you may say, well, I'm just not that kind of person. I wasn't born to be a patient person. I wasn't born to be a kind person. Uh, well, some of us have a greater disposition towards what looks like fruit than others, and we are naturally born with certain characteristics and personalities. But the fruit that Jesus is talking about, or rather that Paul is talking about in Galatians 5, and that Jesus, I believe, is referring to here, is the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of someone who has entered into this journey of abiding, this process of remaining in Christ. And we'll come back to that idea because that is what it is to become a kingdom person. We talked as well last week about how Gary had so ably laid out for us what it is to be a kingdom person or rather what the kingdom of God will look like. And in our talks here, we're looking at, well, how do we become one of those kingdom type of people? So we need to remain in him. And if we do, he'll remain in us. Other uh, versions of the Bible talk about abiding. Uh, and then the fruit will come, the fruit of the Spirit, we, that fruit which is the evidence of our transformation. Jesus then goes back to the idea of saying, I am the vine and you are the branches, underscoring that this life of the disciple, this life of the apprentice, comes from him and cannot be apart from him. Now you may say that's 
Okay, that's not news. No, it's not news. But what is the thing that we want to grasp here is that if I am going to live this life of a disciple, I have got to enter into this process of remaining. And there is a work for me to do here. Jesus then goes on to say, because apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, I think that's probably one of the scariest short phrases in the whole of Scripture. Because apart from me, you can do nothing. And I think the problem for us, and I don't say this to be discouraging, but the problem for us is that often we don't allow it to be out of him that, that our doing comes. That a lot of our doing is often out of our own energy. But as we enter into this process of remaining, of drawing from the vine, then we do what it is that he wants to do through us. Because apart from him, we can do nothing. Nothing of any spiritual significance will take place unless it comes out of this place of remaining. And then Jesus goes on and he says, and if you do, if you, if you step into this type of life, uh, if you remain in me, then you can ask whatever you want. Now, that's also kind of a, a gobsmacking sort of statement, ask whatever you want. But the thing is that if we have remained, then we ask out of the place of spiritual information, of spiritual reality. We ask what it is that he wants us to ask. Now you may say, well, does that make me a robot? Not at all. It is engaging in a life of intimacy where I discover where the heart of life is really about. And then verse eight, which actually uh, I didn't have printed, it goes on to say, this is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, the fruit of the Spirit, and show showing yourselves to be my disciples. In other words, the world then see who Jesus is as we enter in of remaining, as we engage in the process of abiding, then Jesus does this amazing work of transformation in us, and the outcome is that the world will see who he is. That is how the world will see. The Father will be glorified, the fruit of the Spirit in us, and the world will see. So this metaphor of the vine <clears throat> shows us very clearly that we have to enter into a process of becoming. Consider also as well some of the other statements. Jesus says, I am the vine. That is one of seven I am statements. And they all kind of link in with this idea, this concept of remaining in him. Let's remind ourselves what the other I am statements are. Because I think when you see them together, you can see very clearly why it is that we must allow Jesus remaining in him to be the heart of our lives. I am the bread of life. The bread of life. So without remaining in him, without feeding on him, then what will our lives be? I am the light of the world. I'm the one that is going to open up and make sense of things for you. I'm going to reveal to you what, the, what is going on in the world and what life is really about. I am the gate, the way in, the, the doorway by which, I, uh, by which we enter into this life. I am the good shepherd the one who understands the heart of what's going on in your life, the one who knows all that stuff that we talked about at the end last week. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. Back to this whole idea that it's the living Christ, that out of the resurrection that we encounter and meet with the living Christ, and of course then that he will be the resurrection and the life for us at the end of time.
I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine. <coughs> Excuse me. So let's come back to this idea of the vine, that becoming a, a kingdom person depends on us engaging, uh, remaining, entering into this journey of remaining in him. Let's think for a second about, uh, about the life of a vine. Now, Jesus used that metaphor, of course, because uh, in his time, the people who were listening to him would have understood the whole idea of a vine and branches because they walked among them, they saw them every day. For us, maybe if we simply think about a tree, this living connection where Jesus is in fact the one that we draw our life from. Let me tell you a little story of something that went on in my garden recently. And, uh, and I think this demonstrates very clearly what Jesus is saying about the need to remain in him and the fact that if we don't, then this life of growing and becoming like him simply will not take place in us. Um, I had to have some uh, trees that were in the garden uh, taken down just this few months back. And uh, because they were hefty trees, and in these days of uh, economic sort of stringency, I said, well, don't be, you know, turning up all those wonderful logs uh, or trunks. Cut them into logs so that I can use them in my fire. And uh, so they were, and they were chopped up, and uh, I put them into a, a bunker and so on. And I went the other day, um, for some reason, I don't know why, to this bunker, because I didn't need to light this fire. And lo and behold, all these chopped up logs had huge green shoots on them. I thought, my goodness, I'm going to have a tree growing out of my bunker. Now, of course, I'm not going to have a tree growing out of my bunker because there is still sap and life in those logs for a time, isn't there? And so there, there's the appearance of life and there's the appearance of life in them because there were bright green shoots. It looked like I was going to get new trees. But I know that when I go back to those in six months' time, those green shoots will all have died, won't they? And so there, clearly, the vision for me, I, I smiled because I thought, oh, that's a very good one, I could use that on Sunday morning. I smiled because I thought, there is such a, a clear picture of why we must remain in the vine. And the fact that we can probably sometimes uh, be continuing in our, our Christian experience in our lives and maybe not engaging in the process of remaining or abiding and it still appears as if there is spiritual life and spiritual well-being in us but you can be certain that that will quickly dry up. Um, okay so how do we do it? Well let us move into thinking about three aspects of this remaining and then from that uh, some of the practices that we can engage in. So firstly I, I believe we need to examine our lives. I left you last week with a question, a bit of homework, cheeky thing to do when you're uh, doing a sermon but I asked you to go off and, and do a little bit of a life audit and have a look at the time that is spent in your life um, devoted to your the, the faith practices I guess. Um, I'm not sure how you get on with that. But it's a really important place to start, to take time and just say, well, let me look and see, is the first thing first in my life? Is it actually first in my life? And you might say, you might recognize, as I often do, well, actually, no, it's not. And then you think, but how do I make it the first thing in my life? How? Because life has so many demands, it presses in on, in, in on us. And the busyness that we've often talked about, that we want to deal with and get rid of, just seems to take over again and again. 
So how do we get to this place where we can make the first thing first? Well, I think I've shared before when I've talked about this that the biggest learning of this came for me when I was given the opportunity to be in a retreat and we had a, a tremendous experience and at the end of it, the group of us that were there said, but how do I make this part of my everyday practice? You don't know what my life is like. I know I'm going to go back and have endless demands on me. And the retreat leader said, you choose to. You choose to. And the truth of the matter is we can choose to. Because if we do not choose to make the first thing first, to create the structures, the rhythm in our lives that allows God, that allows the remaining in Christ to be a focal, a central point from which we draw everything else in our lives, not just our spiritual lives, but the, the wisdom of, of how we live in every other area. If we don't make it uh, the first thing, or sorry, rather, like we, we need to choose to make it that and realize that other things in our lives are often creating agendas and we can choose to not allow that to be so. So we need to examine our lives and then make this all-important choice. And then we need to put into place practices that will nurture uh, the, the whole growth of remaining, practices that will allow us to engage in this process uh, of journeying with Christ and then recognizing that it is indeed a journey. And let me just take a moment to talk about what takes place when we do that. And we've mentioned it already, and it is that it is the grace of God that will then do the transforming. I put myself in the place by taking that moment to examine by choosing <clears throat> to order the priorities of my life uh, and by putting a structure in place. Um, I choose to do all of that. That is my job. But the work of transformation is the work of God's grace and God's grace alone. And I don't know about you, but uh, I grew up uh, often hearing about grace only as that which allowed me to have come to faith in the first place. By grace I am saved. And it was almost as if, well, that was the work of grace done. But what I, I guess I have understood in recent years is that grace is absolutely central to also being a disciple. Without the ongoing grace of God to transform me, I cannot and will not be transformed. So I put myself in the place where God, by his grace, can come and do a work of grace. If you like, we set up rhythms of grace when we structure our lives so that he can come and do this work. Now, we do this both individually and corporately. There are individual practices or rhythms of grace that we must step into. And, uh, and as I say, we'll look at some of those in a minute. But the other important thing I want to say before we look at some of those practices uh, is this, that we don't just do it on our own. We were never intended to become these kingdom people or to grow in this life of grace purely on our own. And again, perhaps, one of the legacies from uh, certainly my evangelical past, the idea that my growth, my development as a Christian, my journey towards holiness was my own business, was a private affair. And the Bible doesn't make it so. It is, in fact, the affair of the entire community. We are to become a community of grace. So there are uh, 
practices and rhythms that we have to put into our lives individually, and there are practices and rhythms that we have to put into our lives as a community. And some of that community life is going to be as it is this morning, doing what we've done this morning, engaging in worship and prayer together. And some of it is going to be in smaller group, uh, the, the place of the smaller group. And some of it indeed is going to be one-on-one -on -one with another uh, member of the body. So it is both an individual and a corporate practice that we need to enter into. So what are some of these practices that nurture this life of grace in us. This life that then becomes the vehicle for the kingdom of God to come in the world. Well, I'm gonna give you just a few because there are hundreds, uh, but we need to do this in stages. And uh, maybe uh, I'm not even sure whether the ones I've chosen are necessarily gonna be uh, the core ones. I'm not suggesting that they are, but let me give you some, and perhaps there is some sort of order to these, I hope. First of all, we need to, to create what the ancients called a rule of life. In other words, what Dallas Willard was talking about, a structure, a system, rhythms of grace in our lives. And that will involve what we've already talked about, a little bit of a life audit where we ask ourselves, well, what is it? If I was to look at my week from Monday to Friday and just reflect back on the week that has passed, uh, and, and look at each day and, and walk through from the morning to the evening and look at what is happening in each day. Is there a rhythm of grace in there? A place where I am on my own, able to listen for the voice of the Spirit. A place where with others, maybe not necessarily every day, but certainly within the week, where with others are meeting to listen for the voice of God and praying together. What is the, the rhythm? What, are the, uh, what is the structure of my life? We need to do this and we need to do it uh, regularly and assess what is going on because life frankly takes over, doesn't it? Pressures come in, agendas are set by others or by our work or by our family or by all sorts of things. And so the, the pattern, the rhythm can get, get interrupted. So perhaps the first practice we need to pay attention to is this idea of a rule of life and revisit it regularly and make sure that, uh, that life hasn't got out of sync, but that we are intentionally ensuring that the first thing is always first. And then secondly, I want to suggest that a practice that is so important in this becoming process is that of meditating on scripture. Lectio Divina. And many of you have done this and have heard of this practice before. But taking time to just sit with scripture, and if we have time when I'm finished, uh, then we might just take a moment to use the few verses of John 15 and do it, but we'll see how our time goes. Simply taking ourselves apart and sitting with scripture and allowing it to be the bread of life. I am the bread of life. He is the living word. And that means that the written word is also infused with him, the living word. And as we simply sit with it, not asking ourselves, what does it mean the way we would when we approach it in study, and we'll talk about study in a moment, but simply, where is he in this? Listening for his voice, reading it, and reading it again slowly and meditatively, the way you'd read a love letter from someone that you love and listen for their words. When you read a letter, when you're separated from someone that you love and they write you a letter, you read it and you read it again, don't you? 
and you read what they haven't actually said in words between the lines. You sense it. You become aware of the heartbeat of the person. Well, as we meditate on scripture, that's exactly what happens. We become so aware of the heartbeat of God and you can't express that in words and you don't engage with that only intellectually. Uh, you engage with it with your heart. So meditating on scripture, it's, it, it would be, and a practice I guess that would go with that, would be to actually structure into our um, practices, taking scripture and memorizing it. Not just a, a verse that then becomes kind of like a mantra, but maybe a section of scripture and repeating that in our minds as we're driving the car, as we're in the bus. And as we're doing that, we're meditating on it. We're feeding on the bread of life. Thirdly, allowing scripture to examine us. Uh, Paul talks about how the good things that he wants to do, he doesn't do, and that which he wants to do, or that's what which he does do, or I can't remember, I should have got it and quoted it, shouldn't it? But it's tongue-tying that, isn't it? But you know the passage I'm referring to, the good that he wants to do, he doesn't, and so on. In other words, he recognizes that there is stuff of the old person in him, and he longs to be rid of it. But you know, as we allow scripture to examine our lives, God will, in a gracious and gentle way, shine his light on that in us which he longs to transform the stuff of the old self and that, and as we see it we don't then rush out to try to change it but we open ourselves to him and say lord yes i see that that irritable person that angry person that whatever it is you name it for yourself i see that and then we invite him to come and transform it. Because we allow him to examine our lives. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Isn't that, wasn't that the cry of the psalmist? Search me, know my heart. And when we do that, we do it in the light also of Romans 8. That nothing, 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 nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. There's nothing that comes to us that doesn't first come through the filter of his love. And I know that when we're in difficult places, it's hard to believe that. But by faith we must, and must trust it. We had a, a very uh, sad and difficult thing in our family over the last month. Um, and I will share, because I think it, it adds to the uh, energy of what I'm trying to say here. My brother and his wife have been married for 22 years. And eight weeks ago, they discovered they were expecting a baby for the first time. And you can imagine the, ju the jubilation and the joy. And last Saturday, while I was preparing last week's sermon, I got a text to say they'd lost it. It was heartbreaking, absolutely heartbreaking. They would love to have been parents, and they still would. And we're going to pray that God in his grace will still grant them that gift. But you know, one of the things that has spoken most to me in this week is how they have embraced that. Because my brother said to me, when we heard the news, first of all, we couldn't believe it. We were terrified, horrified, that uh, as he said at his age, he was at last going to be a dad, and then thrilled out of his boots. Uh, but he said, after all of that, we sat down and we said, Lord, well, whatever you bring, give us the grace to embrace it. And you know, as they journeyed through last week, 
We were absolutely amazed at how God had answered that for them because the grace that they had to accept the bitter disappointment was a testimony of the work of God's grace in their lives. So as we allow ourselves to open ourselves to this gracious examining God and believe that nothing will come our way, that it doesn't first come through the filter of his love, but also allow him to transform the stuff in us that is not of him, then we enter into something of that incredible freedom of the children of God. Another practice, practicing his presence. Now, a lot of these practices interweave themselves into one another. And of course, if we want to really understand and know the practicing of his presence, then we need to go to Brother Lawrence, don't we, and uh, study it. And there, there is loads of stuff on the website uh, or in websites that you can find if you want to really get into the heart of this wonderful discipline of practicing the presence of Christ, nurturing a continual awareness and openness to his voice, to him around us and in us and working with us and for us and so on. C.S. Lewis wrote, uh, we, we, we ignore but we can nowhere evade the presence of God. The world is crowded with him. He walks everywhere incognito. That's a wonderful thought that he's there all the time, but we need to tune our antennae to be aware of him, to see him, to listen for his voice in the most unusual of things and places and people. And if we are working at this discipline, if we are nurturing, turning our attention to him every moment of every day, which you may say, well, that's impossible, but actually it's not as we train ourselves to do it. We become great multitaskers. Now, I know, men, that's harder for you than it is for us women, but there we are. Uh, but God is good, <laughs> and his grace is able. <laughs> we turn, tune our, ourselves in to be aware of that amazing presence of God that is there all the time, and the presence of God who is within me. And as we do, it's like somebody turns on the sun. It, it really is. We become, we get a perspective on things that we wouldn't have had. We hear the still small voice that we hear talked about in Second Kings, we hear it. And we realize, goodness, that was the voice of God. Now, if you were to suddenly try to explain to somebody else that in that moment you heard him, either they would think you were completely crackers, uh, or you just couldn't do it, because it's a very private and personal thing, the still small voice. But we can train ourselves to hear and discern the still small voice, practicing his presence, listening for his voice all the time. And linked with that, I guess, is the whole idea of developing discernment, another practice, another discipline, discerning his mind in all things, and discerning what he would have us do in the moment. As we stand, perhaps in a, a moment of difficulty or impasse with a colleague at work, then call to him, Lord, 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 what is your heart? What is your heart for this person, this situation? What will break this deadlock, Lord? Discerning his voice in those moments. And then some of the corporate ones, covenant community and accountability. 
Um, the, this is a very precious practice and discipline, that as we spend time with one another, both corporately in a, a group like this, but also in small groups where we are prepared to journey and trust with one another to a place where we will open up and talk honestly about our lives, about our hearts, about who we are, about our longings, about the things that we want uh, God to do in our lives, about our aspirations, but also about the stuff in us that we long for him to transform. And as we, as I say, journey in trust, because it has to be a journey of trust, and open ourselves to one another, we will discover a treasure that really will transform our lives. A treasure that will help us when we know we're really struggling with some sort of temptation. I had this experience some years back, and uh, there was just an issue that would not go away, and I prayed about it on my own and really tussled with it and worked with it. And then I decided, and it took a bit of courage to share this temptation with uh, the person who at that stage I was praying with in a one-on-one -on -one relationship. Do you know that as soon as I did that, the power of that temptation was broken, just like that. It was gone. And I had worked with it and tussled with it and prayed and cried out to God for weeks. But when I shared it with another disciple, another apprentice, the power of that community it, it was, it astounded me. It was awesome. But also the accountability process. Uh, again, if I can go to a, a personal example, there were a couple of folk in my family this week who found themselves in a, a, a bit of a, a disagreement over something, a, a real tension, and both thought the other was wrong. <laughs> You've been there, haven't you? We've had that experience. They both were convinced the other person needed to move on this. Um, uh, and that the other person was wrong and the other person needed to apologize. And it was kind of going on for a few days and it was getting a bit difficult because it was all related to a, a major, one of those big old birthdays that were coming up in the family. And he kind of, as the rest of us watched this, thought, my goodness, what's this party going to be like? It's going to be a nightmare if these two don't get this sorted out. And then, amazingly, well, not because of this grace of God, one of them quite unexpectedly ran the other and said, I am really sorry. I got that wrong. And do you know what the process was that led the one who rang to apologize? They had asked their small group to pray with them about the issue. And at the end of asking their small group to pray with them about the issue, one of the members of the group came up quietly and said, you know, you're wrong. Well, you can imagine it pretty stunned them. And, but, but when the, the sister in Christ said, you're wrong, the member of my family realized that she was indeed wrong. And she rang the other one and apologized. It was an amazing moment of breaking a deadlock. The grace of God in action in community. Quickly, two more things. Study, a hugely important discipline for us to enter into. Not just the study of scripture, but the study of ourselves. John Stott's well-known phrase that we need to engage in double, double listening, to have the scriptures in one hand and the newspaper in the other. We need to study what's going on in the world around us. We need to study the scriptures uh, and, and, the, and what's going on in the world around us in the light of one another and really listen for what it is that God wants to do in the middle of that. 
and then walk into it. And lastly, hospitality. Now, hospitality is not just about sharing a meal together or being, a, uh, being able to provide a good meal. It's a hospitality of spirit. And indeed, the very service that will take place here tonight is a demonstration of that. Hospitality to the stranger, hospitality to any who need it. A cup of cold water in Jesus' name. Let me conclude. As we abide and as we step into this process of abiding in Christ, we will discover a number of wonderful things. We will discover, firstly, a depth of love that he has for us that will overwhelm us. It will reduce us to tears because we'll discover why Jesus in the garden was prepared to say, not my will, but yours be done. Out of a love that you and I will never understand. We sang a wonderful uh, worship song about that today. We will discover a love that will break our hearts. Secondly, we will discover a longing by God himself to transform us, to make us like Christ. Not just because he wants us to be like puppets in his hand, but because he knows that that will lead to real life, to freedom, to the life that will set us free. We will know the truth and the truth will set us free. John 8. As we enter into this process, we will be transformed from one degree of glory to the next as we journey in this life of abiding. And it certainly won't disappoint us. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you took on the Father's will. Thank you that you did not bulk, but you set your face towards Calvary and you journeyed steadily and progressively there so that today we might have the great privilege of knowing you personally. And thank you, Holy Spirit, that you came and that you now dwell within us and you give us the power to live this life this life that will not only transform us, but that will transform our world. And so by your grace, come, take hold of us and turn us into kingdom people so that we might bring glory to you and that the world might see who you are. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.